coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. It's time. And we love the Palestinians and we support their cause, but they won't even talk. And it's been 74 years. We can't wait forever. We're going to make peace on our own and we hope it'll warm up the situation and that they'll come around at some point. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joel Rosenberg. Good evening. My name is Melissa Giller, and I have the honor of being the Chief Marketing Officer for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Thanks for joining us this evening. In his book, Joel joked that in a White House meeting with President Trump, Vice President Pence, and Secretary of State Pompeo, all that went through his mind in the entire meeting was a line from a Sesame Street song, and I think you all know it, One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Now, I wouldn't be kidding if I said that song is not running in my mind right now, because after reading the book and learning of all the important meetings and conferences Joel's invited to and attends, all the world leaders he has sat down with for hours, I can't believe he's here with us tonight and is about to sit down with me. But he is, so let's invite him up here before I lose my nerve. Ladies and gentlemen, Joel Rosenberg. First question I want to ask, um, and I apologize because I'm probably going to say every single person's name mispronounced incorrectly, <laughs> um, but Yusuf Al-Oteba, right, the United Arab Emirates ambassador to the United States, he asked you why you have such an interest in the Arab world. Why do you? Yeah, well, Melissa, first of all, thank you. I, I'm so honored to be here and to be back. Look, part of it is I was never raised to hate Muslims or Arabs, uh, so that's good. I'm from a Jewish background on my father's side. My mom's not Jewish. By faith, we're evangelicals, uh, believers in Jesus as Messiah. And of course, because of my Jewish name and my Jewish heritage, then obviously I focus there. But you can't focus too long on your Jewish heritage and the nation of Israel, either from a historical perspective or from a faith perspective, without thinking, well, how do we interact with an Arab Muslim world that is not exactly happy that Israel exists? And that intrigued me, certainly as an, you know, academically, but by God's grace, we began to meet various Arabs, uh, Arab Christians initially, that we just found fascinating and we wanted to get to know them and we were intrigued by them. And they were very gracious to us, my wife and me, to teach us what kind of what was happening in the region from their perspective. That helped a lot. Also, my brother-in-law, Lynn's sister's husband, is uh, Lebanese. So he was born and raised in Beirut during the Civil War of the 1970s. That's where he grew up. And so you think, wow, this is an interesting family that has a Jewish background, but also has now a Lebanese Arab evangelical. Then one of my sons, our oldest, married a lovely California girl that he met in college out here who's from an Egyptian background on on her dad's side and a Syrian background on her mom's side. So Wow, you can imagine what that wedding was like. Uh, I mean, fortunately, it was peaceful. Uh, <laughs> but, you know. No cake throwing. But anyway, we find it fascinating. And, of course, not every Arab would want to meet me. But those who do, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, and even if they disagree with me entirely on everything, you know, as long as they're not going to kill me, I'm interested in learning. Well, which really leads to my next question, because I felt that every chapter I read, the farther and farther I got in the book, I had the same question over and over again. How are you, and I don't take no of any offense to this, but how are you able to have all of these one-on-one, personal, intimate, long one-on-one meetings when seemingly no one else can? Well, 
God has a sense of humor, <laughs> Melissa. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I can actually answer that question. It doesn't make sense. We, we were talking about it on the, uh, in, in the green room before coming out here. I get the fact that President Ronald Reagan <laughs> met with Arab leaders, Israeli leaders, all kinds of leaders. And I get that people on your board, Steve Forbes, uh, Peggy Noonan, uh, Paul Ryan, of course they meet with these people. Why me? I'm a failed political consultant. Everyone I ever worked for lost in politics, including Steve Forbes. I helped him lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of his five daughters inheritance money. So that didn't, you know, go anywhere. I think I was introduced as, as Dr. Rosemary. I'm not. I'm a Jewish guy. I didn't get the doctor gene. I didn't get the financial gene. It doesn't really make sense. I think that two things are true, though. Becoming a political thriller writer was not the obvious route to go meet leaders, but that wasn't my intention. My intention wasn't go meet Arab kings and sultans and crown princes. I wanted to write great political thrillers because I didn't know how to do anything else, clearly. And um, what happened is over time, you know, when you write your first novel, you just want your mother to be able to find it at a bookstore <laughs> within 100 miles of her house. That's your objective. Yes, you'd love to be a New York Times bestseller, but... Let's just let mom and dad find the book first. But what happened as 5 million got sold over time, lots of interesting people were reading them. And some of them were future secretaries of state, future vice presidents, future CIA directors or formers. And then an Arab king read one. And that changed everything. Mm, interesting. So jumping more into your book, and you talk a lot about ISIS and Muslim Brotherhood, if you look at the Middle East as a whole, how many do you think back the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS versus how many actually really do want peace? It's a very small percentage of Muslims who would be classified as radical Islamists. Okay? There's been enormous amount of studies, enormous amount of research, uh, particularly polling, but also focus groups in almost every Muslim country over the last 20 years uh, since 9-11, trying to understand Muslim attitudes on a wide range of issues, but certainly on do they agree that violence is okay to accomplish their political or theological objectives? And I think immediately after 9-11, lots of Americans angry, scared, horrified, you know, felt the Muslim world just all hated us. And it was an understandable but wrong overreaction to think Muslims are evil. Now, I disagree with a Muslim theologically, but what the data tell us is really interesting. 90 plus percent of Muslims do not believe that you can or should use violence to accomplish their political or theological objectives, 90%. But depending on the country, depending on the time and the, and the moment, somewhere between 7 and 10% of Muslims will tell you Yes, I support suicide bombing if this, that, or the other thing, or I support whatever. That's a problem. It doesn't mean that all 7 to 10% will commit violence, but this is the pool from which the radical Islamist terrorist organizations and states recruit. Okay? Now you say, okay, so the vast majority of Muslims are, are nonviolent. True. And that's good. <laughs> that's very good. The problem is 10% of a world of 1.8 billion Muslims is 180 million people give or take. So then you've got a problem because now you're like, if all those group moved to their own country and started their own country called the Islamic Republic of Radicalistan, let's just say, 
that's the ninth largest country in the world. Okay, that's larger than Russia. That's more than half the size of the population of the United States. That's a problem. So the truth is it's accurate to say the vast majority, vast, vast majority of Muslims are not violent, but that's not the main relevant point. The main relevant point is you have this pool, and from that pool, the terrorists are recruiting. And that's why in Afghanistan, after 20 years, like how long did it take us to beat the, the Nazis and Imperial Japan? But Afghanistan went on and on and on and on. Why? Because they're continuing to recruit from a very significant pool. And understanding that, not being an Islamophobic person, but understanding accurately the threat is the great challenge, both for policymakers and for people. And it's one of the reasons I wrote Enemies and Allies, because that's not only confusing, but it's also changing Mm -hmm. countries that were considered enemies or at least not allies are in the midst of tectonic change where we have to reevaluate, are they the good guys or the bad guys? And some countries are going the other way. Uh, Turkey, for example, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see if we get there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's some of my questions. But talking about the threats and trying to finish this thread, in your meeting with Egyptian President al-Sisi, he said that Iranian leaders have a death wish. In your book, you said, he said, American military might is incomparable, but Iran might push you to use unconventional weapons to stop them from doing the same. Can you discuss the viability of Iran making and actually using nuclear bombs? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that we're meeting today on November 30th of 2021, because yesterday was significant for two reasons. The first, it was the 74th anniversary of the UN partition plan vote in which the United Nations voted overwhelmingly decisively, that the Jewish people should have a state in what was then mandated Palestine. And Israelis were very happy. Jews were Jews. There weren't Israelis yet, but Jews were very happy worldwide. Wow. The world just said, yes, we can have a state. November 29th, 1947. Of course, all the Arab states voted against. And on May 14th, 1948, Israel declared its independence. And then the Arab world attacked. That's significant. But then the other piece is the world just began to re-engage yesterday the Iranian regime in nuclear talks, hoping to persuade Iran to come back into some version of the Obama-Biden nuclear deal of 2015, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, kind of clunky. (laughs) Inherent in those negotiations is the belief, or at least the wish, that the Iranian government wants some pathway back onto the highway of international community and fellowship among nations. That's, I think, a very tenuous uh, assessment. I'm all for pursuing diplomacy because it beats war, but I think you really have to be looking at the nature of the regime. What do they say? What do they do? Is there any evidence that the Iranian regime wants peace, wants to give up a nuclear program? And I would argue the answer is there is very little evidence except a general sense that why would someone want this? Why do you want sanctions? Well, just give up this and we'll give you that. When you look at the theology, the politics, what are these leaders saying? And not everybody. We're talking about the supreme leader. It only really matters what he thinks. And he's the driver of the let's eliminate Israel, annihilate Israel off the map and bring down the great Satan. Is that just rhetoric? Well, we Jews know what well, genocidal rhetoric can lead 
to terrible places. And if you assume, well, they just, it's just for public consumption, they're just trying to rile up the masses, that's a mistake. And uh, it's a mistake that Churchill understood and Chamberlain didn't. So nobody in our part of the world, where I live in Israel, can take that type of rhetoric casually. So all that to say, I believe that Iran wants nuclear weapons. I believe they're willing to give up almost any other luxury to get those nuclear weapons because they believe that they won't be stopped. They don't believe the Trump administration was going to stop them. They don't believe the Biden administration is going to stop them. They're pretty sure that the American leadership, whoever they are at the time, will prevent Israel from stopping them. And therefore, I think they believe that they've got a clear path and they're just looking for the moment. Do you think they think that they not only will they get them, that they will actually use them? So I believe in taking evil people at their word. <laughs> yes, evil people lie when they're trying to obfuscate their evil. But if you look at actual writings and speeches, more often than not, an evil leader is very open, especially earlier in their career, about what they want, right? Adolf Hitler may have lied to Chamberlain, but he had written Mein Kampf. It didn't take a, a rocket science, let's say, German or otherwise, to understand what his objectives were. So I write novels that often people say, oh my gosh, it's like so prescient. It, it seemed to come true. How, you know, were you some sort of Nostradamus or a psychic or a prophet? No, I read what evil people say. I believe them. And then I run a war game in a novel that imagines what if they did it or tried to do it. And it's amazing how many educated people in Washington and Brussels and London and elsewhere go, they're not going to do They're just saying it. Really? Really? We came to Washington, Lynn and I, when we first got married, we moved to Washington in 1990. And what happened? Saddam Hussein was massing hundreds of thousands of troops on the Kuwaiti border. And I remember everybody in Washington, it seemed, you know, the McLaughlin group and uh, Meet the Press and all the pundits. And they're all saying, no, 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 Saddam's not going to invade. He's just trying to drive up the price of oil. He's just saber rattling. That was the term, saber rattling. He's just trying to flex his muscles, show who's who. And I remember saying to Lynn and people that I would meet, I'm like, it looks like he's going to invade. Like, I I obviously don't have a master's degree in this. I, you know, I was a film major for crying out loud at Syracuse. I didn't, I don't have a degree in, you know, I'm not an Arabic speaker or a Persian speaker. I don't have, but it looks like obvious that he's going to invade. And then he did. And everyone seems shocked. Like what town am I in? What <laughs> these people are smart. How, why are they telling themselves, convincing themselves that this evil person isn't going to do what he says he's going to do? what he's about to do, what he's preparing to do, what everyone fears he's going to do. It doesn't make sense, but there is a disconnect in the policy communities. And I don't know what degree you have to get to totally unhook your brain and go, what's obvious isn't true, but that's a dangerous way to govern. And speaking about the change you referred to a little bit ago, what do you think motivated President Trump to work with these Middle East countries that previous administrations had not? Well, it was fascinating to report that, to, to study that, to ask everybody in the administration, including himself, why he was doing what he was doing and how he was doing it. And this book is the first book, it's the only book at the moment, that it tells the inside story of how the Abraham Accords came about. Of course, the Abraham Accords being 
these historic peace agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. The bottom line, the simplest way to put it is President Trump decided to pursue the George Costanza doctrine of international public policy. Okay, so any of the Seinfeld people, I was hearing some reaction. So there's an episode of the Seinfeld where George Costanza's life is such a ruin. We all know it by the time this episode comes up. Every decision that he makes is wrong. And he, he finally realizes it. And Jerry is sort of playing with him. He says, well, if every decision you make is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. And George's like, that's right. That's true. So instead of tuna salad on rye, why don't you have chicken salad on, you know, white bread or whatever it was? <laughs> it works out for George in that episode. Basically, Trump, with no national security experience whatsoever, no foreign policy experience whatsoever, said, why do we think that pursuing peace talks with the Palestinians or any other Arab country, the way it's been done for the last quarter century, is going to create a different result? I don't see it in business. I don't see it in life. Why would we go down that road? Maybe we should throw out the playbook and do the exact opposite. Now, around him were people who were very skilled, of course. Uh, Mike Pompeo at that time, uh, CIA director, uh, Mike Pence, vice president, Nikki Haley at, at the UN, and, and a whole wonderful, very smart and experienced team. What they told the president and his team, Jared Kushner and others, is, listen, what if we close the gap of our relationship with Israel? Sell them more weapons, uh, you know, move the embassy to Jerusalem, all the things that would tell the rest of the Arab world, listen, we are never, ever breaking with Israel. But we love you and want to work with you, too. But you just have to know this is not a question. We're not asking ourselves as a sovereign country where our embassy is going to be anymore. That was a law passed in 1995. It's been, you know, many decades. We're moving the embassy. That's it. And... Everybody in Washington nearly told the president that's going to blow up the region and destroy any chances of peace. John Kerry famously said at the Brookings Institution, I know there's people who say that you can do all these things and then, you know, forget the Palestinians and try to make peace between Israel and the outside Arab states first. And he says, I'm telling you, it's never going to happen. No, 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 no. Four no's. United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, <laughs> Sudan, and Morocco. So it was the exact opposite. And I think it's a fascinating story of how did they get to that point and why did it work? It mainly worked. I won't go on and on, but it, because, because I did write a book about it, but um, <laughs> it, it worked because Trump and his team assessed accurately a fundamental change in the region. They could see things that the other side had locked into a certain set of paradigms that they couldn't get out of. Maybe they all, the other side thought it was true for many decades, but when it didn't work, they didn't reassess their own assumptions. Trump team did. Trump insisted that they do it, and they were right. I mean, why they couldn't win a Nobel Peace Prize for it says something more about the Nobel Peace Prize than about that team. But all of those leaders, including the leaders of all those other countries, deserved a Nobel Peace Prize. And it really cheapened, maybe I think forever, devalued the honor of a Nobel Peace Prize if you can't win it for making peace. A lovely couple uh, that are journalists won it. 
they seem like nice people. I'm, I'm for good journalism. But if you make peace between Arabs and Israelis, that doesn't count in this new world. To go back to Seinfeld, it's the bizarro world, you know, <laughs> up is down, down is up. But speaking of those four countries, do you think lasting peace is possible? Well, lasting how long? I mean, when the Messiah comes, we'll have peace. Uh, until then, there's going to be war, wars and rumors of wars. Of those, I would say I'm most skeptical of the Sudan agreement with Israel, but I'm, you know, Sudan is trying to figure out its way in the world. And they did pay 300 million plus in reparations to the United States for terrorist attacks that they'd committed. It'll go to the people that whose families were uh, affected. And they've made a number of changes that got them off the U.S. terror list. So that's good. It's a troubled country and it's, I, I'm not convinced that it's going to stick. But um, the other three countries, I believe, fundamentally believe that it's time to welcome Israel into the neighborhood. I go back to that point 74 years ago yesterday, the Arab world unanimously said, absolutely not. The Jews have no place here. We're not going to countenance a Jewish state. And where are we today? Egypt has made peace. Jordan has made peace and these others. And I think these are real. And I've sat with these leaders for hours and I've listened to them and I've pressed them from not just me, but the evangelical leaders that I brought with me. We press them from every direction to try to understand, is this real? And um, it's exciting when it's real. Mm -hmm. I'll just say real quickly, um, I tell the story in Enemies and Allies of, you know, we had almost three hours with President LCC, the first trip that we made, and we were only supposed to have an hour. So that was wonderful. And it's all on the record. So it's all on the book. But at the end of it, he, he his staff basically said, now, have, are you going to see Jihan Sadat? the widow of President Anwar Sadat, who made peace with Israel first. And uh, we said, uh, no, we don't even know her. We, uh, said, no, 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 we have to do it. So one of the aides calls up Mrs. Sadat and says, can this group come over? And she said, sure, come have tea. <laughs> okay. So in a few hours, we're in the home where Anwar Sadat planned the sneak attack on the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, 1973, and nearly destroyed the state of Israel. Israel almost used, so we read, nuclear weapons to defend itself. I mean, that was bad, the October Yom Kippur War 73. That's the house where he planned it. We were in the living room where he did it. But that's the same living room where he decided to come up with a sneak peace attack, as it were, peace initiative. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to speak to the Knesset. I'm going to offer my hand. Uh, in peace, and it may take a long negotiation. And, you know, the one thing, in my view, I'll say it here at the Reagan Library, that I think President Jimmy Carter gets great credit for uh, as a president, as a peanut farmer, as a Baptist, look, a Sunday school teacher, he somehow got these two leaders together, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Bacon, to make peace, but it's because they wanted to. You can't help someone make peace if they don't want to. These two men had made the decision, it's time, but I'm going to go, you know, like anybody in the bazaar or the shuk in the Middle East, you don't just take the first price. You have to haggle, and those guys haggled a lot. <laughs> I believe these other leaders have made this decision. It's time. And we love the Palestinians, and we support their cause, but they won't even talk. And it's been 74 years. We can't wait forever. We're going to make peace on our own, and we hope it'll warm up the situation and that they'll come around at some point. These are fundamental 
fundamental changes. And it's amazing to have not just a front row seat, but almost a backstage pass to sit with these leaders. The UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, told us two years before he made the Abraham Accords deal, the first one to do it, that he was going to do it. We were shocked, but it was off the record at the time. We were walking out on this with this huge headline coming out of the palace, and we couldn't say anything. So, you know, as even juggles, we, you know, we had to keep our word. We told him we wouldn't, we didn't, but boy, he kept his word. And I tell the story of why and how he got there in the book. Now, speaking about both sides wanting peace to make peace, one of my questions is you have a section or a paragraph you talk about Putin. How do you think we went from Reagan and Gorbachev working together towards peace uh, to Putin building nuclear weapons to take everybody down? Yeah. Uh, well, how much time did you say Exactly. Um, <laughs> All night. Yes. As he would have said, well, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's quite a story. Okay. Putin factors into this book a lot. And I do a, a, like a mini profile of him. Let me step back for one moment to say that it's actually the Reagan model of peace through strength, being willing to haggle in the bazaar, but not give up and hold your ground, showing the other side that there are certain things you won't compromise on, that the Trump team, Pence, Pompeo, uh, Jared Kushner, their whole team, really drew on. Meaning by strengthening the relationship between the United States and Israel, it was showing we're strong and our ally is strong. And if you want to play with us, We'd love to, but we're not changing this. And they kept doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on Israel. Everyone told them that wouldn't work, but they were taking a page right out of the Reagan playbook. Secondly, they didn't go into negotiations and were so desperate for a deal that they took the first offer that came. Uh, Reagan, of course, Gorbachev wanted to make deals, but the de- why did he want to make a deal with Reagan? So that Reagan would give up movements of putting new nuclear weapons in Europe, increasing U.S. economic power, a missile defense system, which, by the way, everyone said was crazy, Star Wars. I've been saved by Israeli-American technology that shot down missiles right over my head. That What he dreamed, I've been saved by. So that's pretty cool. So all that actually played a, a key role, the Reagan playbook in with the Soviets, played into the Trump approach to the Middle East. But Putin is one of the great tragic errors of the post-Reagan Gorbachev success. Okay, Gorbachev had fundamentally decided we can't beat the Americans, but maybe we can game them and slow them down. And in the end, he didn't have a good hand, and Reagan did. And I don't think Gorbachev meant to <laughs> unravel the entire Soviet Union, but he did want peace and he knew he couldn't win. So it was almost inevitable at that point. But then Boris Yeltsin rose and that seemed very promising until Boris Yeltsin handed the keys to the kingdom to the head of the KGB. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, that sounds like a Rosenberg novel, except I hadn't written any yet. <laughs> but when you basically put Michael Corleone in charge of your country, <laughs> things are going to go badly. And I describe Putin as there's really two ways to assess him. He either is a czar or thinks of himself as a czar, meaning part of the like a divine ruler for Russia who is not part of a democracy. He's an authoritarian dictator and everybody ought to bow down to him because he's God's man. 
And I think that's a fair way to read the way he acts. But there's another way, and that is the, the, the Godfather scenario, that he's, a, he's really a mafia boss at his heart. And he's trying to amass power, and he's trying to amass wealth, and he's got bad cards. But he does have nuclear weapons, and he does have a world unwilling to confront him. So he plays those cards, and right now we're on the verge of a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do we think that the Biden administration is going to stop him? We do not. We do think NATO is going to come to the rescue? No, I don't think so. So Putin knows that if he goes there, it'll be, might be messy, but no one's going to stop him. I wrote a political thriller a few years ago called The Kremlin Conspiracy, in which a Putin-esque, let's just say, a Putin-esque leader is plotting to attack and seize three Baltic states, right? Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, thinking that he could capture them. They're small, 96 hours he could do it. But this Russian dictator, similar to Putin, thinks, his advisor's saying, that's crazy, that's NATO. They'll, they'll go to war with you. He says, really? You think they're going to go to war with me for Estonia? Most people don't know where it is. They're not going to do that. And once I grab it, one, two, or three, that's the end of NATO. You can't have Article 5 where everybody comes to their defense if nobody comes to their defense. And that would be the end of the alliance. And that was a chilling premise for a novel, but I think it's it's realistic. So all that to say, I consider Putin czar Putin, but I also see him as Michael Corleone. He's not Vito Corleone, aging, infirm, ready to leave this world. He's not Sonny Corleone, rash and impulsive, getting himself killed at the toll booth. He's not Fredo, right? He's not dim-witted. He's a cold, calculating killer. He's Michael Corleone. And Washington ought to realize that, and Brussels, and Berlin, because we've got a monster. And he's nuclear-armed, and he's arming all of our worst enemies, including Iran. I wish that were fiction, but (laughs) unfortunately it's not. Something to sit with. This is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. Scripture tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Would you take a moment right now to pray for our staff at the Joshua Fund as they work to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus? We're in a battle against the evil one, and your prayers make all the difference. Just so there's time for the audience to ask questions, but I will be honest, there's about eight questions in this question. (laughs) But in reading your book, I felt like I couldn't not ask this question. I feel like because your book talks about it, we do need to talk about the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. So here's my 9,000 questions in this question. (laughs) So do you you and your delegation ever fear for your lives when you're in these countries that in some cases, Christian delegations have never been in, um, not even mentioning your Jewish roots, Mm. you're in uh, Jewish roots in these countries. And after meeting Mohammed bin Salman, what do you think his role really was in his death? A little bit of context for people who haven't read the book. I'm, I'm so grateful that you have and had me come anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we were invited by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, to visit him. We were invited in the summer of 2018. At the time, he was on a global tour to promote his Vision 2030 reforms, and he was getting a lot of great press. He really was 
you know, mixing things up, you know, allowing women to drive, allowing women to go to soccer games, I mean, big sweeping economic and social reforms. Now, with Saudi Arabia, there's a lot to do to change, but these were big reforms and they had never been done. And this was a big deal. And so we were invited. And it was interesting because when we were invited to spend time with Sisi in Egypt and King Abdullah in Jordan, that was very special and very interesting. But let's remember, both of those countries have peace with Israel. For them to invite me, a Jewish evangelical Israeli with two sons who've served in the Israeli army, to come to the United Arab Emirates, to come to Saudi Arabia, was a big deal because they didn't have peace with Israel. So we said yes. And then we were told, I was told by the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, Adel Al-Jubair, when we met in New York uh, in the fall of 2018, he said, do you realize, Joel, that you're the first Christian delegation in the 300-year history of the Saud family controlling so much of the peninsula ever invited into the palace, ever? He said, no, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So we, I said, we were honored. Now, what happened? We were supposed to arrive in Saudi Arabia, I believe, on October 30th. But what happened on October 2nd? This is when the news began to leak that Washington Post columnist, Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi had disappeared. And then macabre rumors coming out in the Turkish media that he'd been butchered inside a Saudi consulate in Turkey. It was so fantastical. It just seemed that it could, how could that even possibly be? But it be, I mean, it really, it, it happened. And as that month unfolded, of course, a global firestorm, how in the world could this happen? It's so horrible. It's reprehensible, just sickening. Now, do you go or do you not go? Okay. You're the first Christian leaders in 300 years to be invited. There's not a single church that is allowed to operate on Saudi territory. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about how Christians are treated in Saudi Arabia. We want to talk about religious freedom issues. We want to talk about human rights issues. We want to talk about will the Saudis make peace with Israel? How do the Saudis see Iran uh, and particularly the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei? There's a lot of topics that we want to talk about as well as Vision 2030 and all the things they want to talk about. If we don't go, it makes sense. We, we, we're not being complicit. We're not giving a fig leaf to this. We're not turning a blind eye. However, if we don't go, we've just become judge and jury. We don't know. Did he order? Did he know? It was a real moral challenge. And by the way, when we decided that we should keep our word, we went on the principle that we said we would. He's still keeping the invitation open. Everybody's leaving. We were literally, well, not literally, we were figuratively going up a one-way street against traffic. Business leaders were leaving. Nobody, no senators were, American senators were going. We decided to go because we were afraid that we would end up closing a door on a conversation that had to happen. But you walk into that room in the palace and you're not thinking, ooh, I'm in a palace. I'm in a motorcade. You're thinking, am I walking into a misunderstood and maligned world leader? Or are you walking in on the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Okay. I don't think we feared for our lives really because we figured you send 10 American Christians into the palace. The Americans are going to go to war if we don't come out. We didn't really think that was a thing. But you can't walk in there and go, 
Let's talk about Vision 2030. Let's talk about churches. You have to start with Khashoggi. And how do you do that? How do you ask a man eye to eye, as close as you and I are, did you order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? And of course, as the leader of the delegation, that fell to me. So we had that conversation. And it, it was on the record. And you can read about it in the book. How many of those questions did I answer in your... I think you got them. Okay, did I get them? <laughs> Thank you. But I, I don't want to give the impression, um, and, I, and I don't give the impression in the book that that was easy or that I can tell you today, Melissa, whether he ordered it or not. I do deal with all the documents that have been released and those that haven't. There is not a single piece of evidence that has been publicly released that can confirm that he did it or that he knew. The Biden administration did release earlier this year, and it just happened just in time to shoehorn this into the book. They put out a four-page memo from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and they basically in page one condemn MBS as he knew he did it. Whether he formally did it or he sent them to do it, it it happened. Okay. But by the last page, they have a list of all these Saudis that were involved in the operation. And the text says, I quote it in the the text says, U.S. intelligence cannot determine whether these folks knew that their actions would result in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, whoa. If on page one you say he's guilty, and on page four, you say, I don't know if the people that did it knew that that's what was going to happen. That does not jive. Now, maybe there's some piece of information that we don't know, but look, he may have done it. I say he may have done it. And it's a horrible thing to spend time in a room with someone who may have done that. But two points are important. One is the United States is working with Iran. As we speak, they're trying to engage with Iran. The current president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, He's under U.S. sanctions for murdering 30,000 of his own people. Biden administration doesn't have any problem with dealing with butchers as an enemy. But as an ally, they, even without proof, okay, that, so that's the thing. But the other side is this issue of proof. The entire argument, everyone I've talked to, everyone I've interviewed, every, every quote you'll see in the book, including a, a wonderful um, member of your board, the publisher of the Washington Post, who is furious with Biden, because Biden is still engaged with the Saudis, though he did put out that memo. But here's the case. The case is MBS must have known because the system is set up so that he would know. It's strange credulity that he didn't know. Whether he ordered it, it's a little bit, but, but he had to have known and therefore he could have stopped it. That's the argument. Let me just say that when you argue it that way, you think, yeah, I don't, it's a pretty tightly held system. How could he have not known? But here's my problem. If you go into a court of law and you say, here's all the circumstantial evidence, but you say, but what about this, 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 and this? This is how people get off. Because you, if you just decide he's guilty, well, then why are we having the discussion? But if you have to say, I got to prove that you're guilty, well, you must be guilty. That leads us to two points. George W. Bush, CIA, Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Saddam must have had chemical weapons. He did before. He's used them. He kicks out the inspectors. He won't let us come see what he's got. He's got them. What was uh, George Tennant's favorite line? It's a, it's, a, it's a slam dunk. And I thought so. I wrote a novel based on the whole premise. It just wasn't true. I mean, there were some weapons that were not we need to worry about. And I'll give you one more. Donald Trump. He must have colluded with the Russians. How could this guy... 
have beat Hillary Clinton. It, he didn't think he was going to do it. His staff didn't think he was going to do it. The day of the election, nobody thought in the Trump team they were going to win. He wins. He must have cheated and he must have used the Russians. It's obvious. Except that they spent $30 million and Robert Mueller couldn't, could, there was no evidence. Like whichever side you're on on that, just let's remember on a Republican who went to war, a war I agreed with still to this day. But if we knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction, we never would have done it. But we were sure. Trump, you know, I don't agree with the Democrat assessment, but I did think maybe it's possible. If you spend $30 million, I guess we all know. This concept of they must have known, he must have known. We have to be really careful of that. Brett Kavanaugh must have been a horrible person. Okay, but when you listen to the evidence, you, you can't, you don't get there. So it becomes a, your own prejudice. I want that to be true, and therefore it is. But you can't do world diplomacy based on that. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to work with characters that have less than savory uh, positions. And But the question is, how do you get them to move? And, I, and the last part I'll say, because now I'm really going on into a speech, is the Biden administration is working with President Erdogan in Turkey. Turkey's going to the dark side. There's no talk of not working with Erdogan. Why not? Why isn't he being kicked out of NATO? He's buying weapon systems from the Russians. He's a NATO ally. There's no policy. There's no provision to kick somebody out of NATO. So what do we do? But Biden's not getting tough with Erdogan. So this is a problem. It's a problem because Erdogan's going to the, to the wrong direction, in the wrong direction, and we're working with him. MBS is going in the right direction. Not if he ordered that murder, but in every other area, well, not, a vast majority of domestic issues, he is taking Saudi Arabia into a new world. It's the world we want. So how do you not work with him? It's a very difficult situation, and it's way above my pay grade, but I got to sit with him, and this is the only book, the only book ever published that MBS speaks to the author. The Wall Street Journal published a book, an uh, entire biography of MBS. Two reporters never met him. New York Times, entire book, Ben Hubbard, the bureau chief, never met MBS. It's a biography about MBS. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying this is the only book. If you're curious, you may hate MBS, but at least... Read it. I'm not trying to make the case for him, but I think this is the fairest book there is, um, and it's the only book there is that the author has met him. Okay, that's you ask a question like that. I, I, it's my, it's I can't my fault. give you a yes or no answer. We have time for one or two questions, so um, please wait for someone to bring a microphone to you so the people at home can hear your question. Go ahead, Trisha. Yes, uh, thank you for coming tonight. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for coming. And um, my question is: is how big of a threat is Hezbollah to Israel at this point in time? Well, my temptation is to say you need to read my most recent novel, <laughs> The Beirut Protocol, but I will give you an answer for free. Hezbollah is the Iranian-trained, backed, funded, armed terrorist organization from Iran. It is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Islamic Republic of Iran, okay, and it controls almost all of Lebanon, okay? It is the forward operating base for the Iranian regime. And in 2006, uh, Hezbollah fired 4,000 missiles at Israel in a 34-day period called the Second Lebanon War. 
it was just, uh, it was prior to when we got there, but it was brutal. And uh, today there are 150,000 missiles in Lebanon. Then they had maybe 10,000 and they fired 4,000. But now we've got, they've got 150,000 missiles aimed at Israel. And if Israel decides to bomb Iranian nuclear facilities because they believe that Biden won't and because it's becoming this close. I mean, we are the talk right now. You go to all Israel news, allisrael.com that our story, one of our lead stories this week has been the prospect for a diplomatic solution on Iran's nuclear facilities are fading and the prospect of an Israeli strike are rising steadily. This is dangerous. It's dangerous because Iran knows that Israel knows that if we strike them, they are very likely to, to unleash some portion or all of their 150,000 missiles. We have missile defense systems, the best in the world, but we don't have defenses that can stop 4,000 missiles a day coming into Israel or more. That's how dangerous it is. So Hezbollah has killed more Americans than any other organization, terrorist organization, except Al-Qaeda. And they hate us and they hate Israel. And they are, again, a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran. They are, they're Iran's right arm. Good evening. Thank you again for coming. I've read your book. It's outstanding. So I want to ask you a follow-up. Thank you for reading it and coming anyway. That's so (laughs) kind. I want to ask a follow-up question to the last time you were here. What's the latest on Bibi? On Bibi Netanyahu. Well, again, a great year to have a new website. We, uh, We launched all Israel news and all Arab news in September of 2020. And wow, what a crazy year. Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu is the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, longer than the, our founder, David Ben-Gurion, out of office. He's now in the opposition. I just saw him a, uh, a couple weeks ago at an event. A fist bumped him. We can't really shake hands in the COVID era. But uh, asked him if he was upset for not winning a Nobel Peace Prize. He goes, uh, he goes it's totally devalued. I wouldn't want to win a Nobel Peace Prize now. But, um, but the point is, uh, yeah, he's out. He's in the opposition and he's under trial on three entirely different corruption cases. I don't take a position that he's guilty. I consider him innocent until proven guilty, as I do in all of uh, every area of life. But politically, it became a huge problem for him. So he's gone. So what a year. Like uh, Netanyahu is gone. Trump's gone. Uh, Naftali Bennett is the new prime minister, the youngest in the history of Israel. Uh, Nobody almost knows who he is outside of Israel. Uh, Joe Biden is the oldest president in the United, you know, the history of the United States. You know, it's just a lot of topsy turviness, and it's great for journalism, and uh, it's challenging to though to understand how it all works together. And I think people, there's a lot of confidence in Netanyahu in handling Iran, the Iran threat. That's one of his greatest strengths. Nobody's quite sure how Naftali Bennett's going to do it. He's young. He's 49. He was a former defense minister and served in special forces. So it's not like he's a newbie, but still, is he going to go to war with Iran? Those are big question marks. We have time for one more. Let's take it from the side with Montana. The man that was uh, killed in uh, Turkey, why was he killed? Oh, you're talking about Jamal Khashoggi. Okay, because I was also thinking uh, there was an evangelical pastor that was detained uh, in prison for two years. I, I interview him, Andrew Brunson, for the book. Well, I go through the best as we can tell what the reasoning was. There was no question that somebody in the Saudi government wanted this guy at least captured. But they didn't send people on that team that could dismember a body. 
this is where you say, if this is not premeditated, they certainly were taking every preparation in case they wanted to kill him. Right. So that's a huge problem. And that's why there are Saudis in prison right now and should be forever. Jamal Khashoggi had emerged as the most influential dissident and deepest, sharpest critic of the Saudi government with the highest level of credibility because he'd once worked for the Saudi government. He worked in the Saudi embassy in Washington. He was close to senior leadership in the royal family. So he wasn't just a guy with a typewriter. He was a Saudi at a very high level. What's interesting is not a lot of reporters have looked carefully at, or people have looked carefully at, what would have been the reason that the Saudis would have done it? At least to bring him back for questioning or arrest, okay? Now, that's a different system than ours, so I can't compare those, but set aside the murder for a moment. Why do they even want to get him? And what's interesting is when you do go look at the Washington Post coverage, New York Times coverage, others, David Ignatius wrote a fascinating series of articles, and he's one of the most respected uh, Washington Post columnists. And what's interesting is they all knew Khashoggi really well. That's why it was so painful, among other reasons. But, I mean, this was personal to the American press. They knew this guy. But also they explained he was a Muslim Brotherhood member. He was definitely an Islamist was close, personal friends, was Osama bin Laden, interviewed him, met with him, had his picture taken with him in Afghanistan. Now, Khashoggi would make the case that he broke with bin Laden, but we have, there are pictures of him with Kalishnikovs and RPGs in Afghanistan. Anyway, there's a whole case that Khashoggi was running a very sophisticated attack operation against MBS personally and against the royal family. And he had 2 million Twitter followers, something to that effect. So this is a guy with a big microphone, megaphone. But that's not justification of murder. It's not justification for arrest, in my view. It's not a justification for a rendition operation. It's horrible. There's no way to, other way to say it. Despicable, unconscionable, horrible in every possible way. The only question in my mind is, did it come from the top? Or did it come from somebody who thought this is what I should do to please the guy at the top. And there's a difference. The Saudis are a very complicated story. But I will tell you, maybe this is, I'll just wrap on this. We need Saudi Arabia. We don't need them for their oil anymore. Not for us. We, we need their oil for Japan. We need it for Europe. We can't just throw this country out. They're a strategic asset for our security architecture in the region. Second, I didn't connect a dot. The rising Iranian threat, not just to Israel, not just to America, but to the Arab world, is what's forcing the Arab leadership to say, if we had to go to war with Iran to neutralize their, their nuclear program, could we trust the Biden administration to come with us? Could we even trust the Trump administration to come with us? Trump administration did a lot of good things, but would they have gone to war? The Arabs don't think so. So they're realizing well, then who's going to war with us if we have to? Now, we don't want to, but if we had to. And they're scanning the horizon, and they're, they keep looking at Israel. And they think Israel has the capacity and the will, if they have to. And they think, maybe we've miscalculated the role of the Israelis in this region. Maybe they're our friends and not our enemies. Maybe they're our allies and not our enemies. And it's causing a fundamental reassessment in the Arab world, and they're going... We need to team up with them, not just militarily, but economically. We have money. They have technology. It's a match made in heaven. Why aren't we doing this? 
well, we need to change. We need to change everything. And the Saudis are realizing we're running out of gas. We're running out of oil. So we got to change. We got to become an actual, real, industrialized, high-tech economy. Israel can help us with that. But if you're trying to turn your country from a closed, forbidden kingdom that hates Jews and hates Christians and hates everybody else, how are you going to change? Well, you got to start finding ways to welcome people. If people think that you're a butcher, nobody's going to invest. And they might go to invest. One guy might fly into Riyadh and sign a billion-dollar deal with MBS. But when he gets home, well, let's say it's a woman. She's a CEO. She gets home, and her husband's like, are you freaking insane? You can't make a deal with that guy. You can't. No. Or the board says, are you ins-? no, we're not doing that deal. If nobody will do deals with Saudi, then they've got a huge problem. And even if they do the deals, if no tourists come, what, if you want to change your economy off of oil, what do you need? You need technology. You need trade. You need tourism. Who's come to Saudi Arabia if they feel like it's a dangerous place, an evil place, a barbaric place? You've got to change everything. That's why they invited us to say, hey, we're trying. It's not enough. they got a lot more to do. But this book takes you into why they're doing what they're doing, and then you be the judge. Do you believe them? Do you not believe them? But the key is to go listen to evil leaders and good leaders and to leaders you're not sure about. You come listen to the Reagan doctrine, you look at his history, you say, then you can make your assessment. I'm a fan. But I was raised in a Democrat house, so it took me a while. <laughs> I, and one of my great regrets, of all the people I've gotten to meet, I didn't get to meet him. But I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you very so much. thank you so much for coming. This was fabulous. For those of you who haven't read the book, I don't think we really touched on the fact that each chapter, each section is Joel and his group meeting with that world leader and the world leader could be an American. And so it's just fascinating to learn about that region, who the leaders are, um, what's going on in that region and what his group was able to learn and the progress you're able to make. So I highly recommend you read it. Um, You can buy him in a museum store. He's going to go over there right now and sign him. So we encourage you to go over and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Scripture and brain science agree. Meditating on God's Word transforms us and reduces stress in our lives. I'm Jody Nisnik, host of So Much More, Creating Space for God, a scripture meditation podcast. And each week I give you space to hear God's Word, listen to the Spirit, and pray about what's on your heart. And then we have a thoughtful conversation with guests to help us go deeper. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.